chick flicks, romantic comedies, rom-coms. You love them, you hate them, but we are here to eviscerate them. Welcome to the Rom-Com Killjoys podcast. I'm your host, Janelle Walker. Now, let's get on with some feminist joy killing. Hello, welcome back to the podcast, everyone. We're coming to you in a very um, particular time, not just in a time in the calendar year where we recognize Pride Month here at the beginning of June in recognition of the Stonewall Riot in 1969 and celebrate uh, the whole spectrum of queerness and all of its beauty all through the month of June. But we're also recognizing a time of great mourning and difficulty and complexity in the United States and elsewhere um, as we recognize ongoing attacks on Black lives and the degree to which those attacks are not being addressed structurally. So in recognition of that, before we get started with our episode and in very much due deference to all of the intricacies um, between, around, and through Black life and queerness, and in recognition of both the uh, ongoing uprisings now and the uprisings that bring us Pride Month, We're going to be donating all of our proceeds from Patreon um, beyond cost to uh, Taraji P. Henson's Boris Lawrence Henson Foundation. This isn't a spot from the foundation. This isn't something they've asked us to do. It's just something that we've looked into as an organization that we think could be useful to people right now and we think has a great mission. The foundation advocates for greater understandings and access to mental health for the Black community. Uh, and it is also offering free mental health services right now. Uh, so you can go to their website, borislhensonfoundation.org, um, to get some free therapy uh, during this time that is so um, difficult and painful and, and taxing um, for, for Black folks, especially in our audience. So we encourage you to check that out, and we recognize this difficult time. And we, we, move, um, we move with it into this uh, very special episode that kicks off our Pride Month here on the podcast. Uh, And kicking us off on that journey is Yorena Onafri. Yorena, will you introduce yourself to the people? Hi, uh, my name is Yorena, and uh, Janelle and I went to college together. And I am a queer woman, and I love romantic comedies. So I'm very excited to talk about one of my favorite queer romantic comedies today. Ah, yes. And tell us, what is the film that we are starting with today that was a recommendation from you? Yes. So we are starting with one of my favorite movies. It is Imagine Me and You. And um, it stars Lena Headey and Piper Parabo. And Piper Parabo plays a woman who um, realizes uh, she's in love with her florist on her wedding day. Uh, So there's quite a lot to unpack there. Yes, and let's get going with it. I'll, uh, I'll start us off by reading the Google summary. Here we go. Imagine me and you, the year of our Lord, 2005. During her wedding ceremony, Rachel, played by Piper Parabo, notices Luce, played by Lena Headey, in the audience and feels instantly drawn to her. The two women become close friends. And when Rachel learns that Luce is a lesbian, she realizes that despite her happy marriage to Heck, played by Matthew Good, she is falling for Luce. As she questions her sexual orientation, Rachel must decide between her stable relationship with Heck and her exhilarating new romance with Luce. Well, Irena, that's what Google says this movie is about. 
But if you had to say, if you had to really articulate it, what is this movie really about? I would have to say this movie is really about a woman who is stuck in compulsory heterosexuality, truly finding herself. And this is kind of a love letter to women who realize they're queer after they marry or later in life, which is still fairly common, especially because a lot of us still feel the pull of compulsory heterosexuality and, you know, am I truly queer enough? So it's about Rachel finding herself and realizing that she deserves happiness no matter what, but it's also not about her achieving happiness. It's about everyone achieving happiness. Because with the main love story, um, and I just found this out yesterday as I was rewatching it, it was actually designed as a to be uh, initially written as a heterosexual couple. So Luce was supposed to be a man, or one of the characters was supposed to be a man and one of the characters was supposed to be a woman. But they changed it to two women, which I find works a lot better and is still somewhat kind of problematic, but not as problematic as running off with another guy right after you marry a guy, in my personal opinion. And it's about finding happiness and realizing you deserve happiness because most of the character, well, the three characters that are involved in the love triangle, they're actually kind of great and kind of sympathetic. And it's everyone else who sucks. So I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later. Yeah, there's so much to unpack there. I I think it's good to start, actually, because I wrote this phrase down in my notes over and over again. Compulsory heterosexuality, compulsory heterosexuality, heteronormativity. If you were to say what compulsory heterosexuality means to you, um, what would you say its definition is? Compulsory heterosexuality to me, um, from the time I was little, I've always wanted to sort of be perceived as normal. And normalcy to many people is being heterosexual. So with compulsory heterosexuality, it was always, you know, I want to be normal. I want to be normal, knowing deep down inside that, you know, I wasn't normal. And it wasn't until I came out in college where and was able to be in an environment where my abnormalcy was not something shameful or hidden, but something to be celebrated that really helped me get over wanting to be heteronormative and wanting that compulsory heterosexuality so that's kind of what compulsory heterosexuality is to me what about you Janelle I would agree with that I think uh you know I my relationship to it as an idea is slightly different because I identify as straight uh insofar as I feel like I can identify with with uh any identity marker in terms of sexuality but Yeah, I think it's that deep uh, interconnectedness between the idea of having a different gender partner and this idea of the normal and the supposed to and the the role you're supposed to play in society. Mm. And I think this film does a really good job. And I'm so surprised to hear from you that this was initially written for two heterosexual couples and like a heterosexual love triangle, because you're right. I think that the story works so beautifully um, with this, uh, you know, later in life uh, burgeoning into queerness um, because the, the movie starts at the wedding and, you know, Rachel, who's Piper Perivo's character in her like bridal speech, 
she talks about how she and Heck were mates, right? Friends. And then they were lovers. And even though that's not a conventional fairy tale, maybe it's a good kind of fairy tale. But the subtext there is that, but, but is it really that magic? Is it really magic? Or is it just what you think you're supposed to be doing? Yeah. And later on it goes, you know, when she's sort of coming out to him, when he's kind of like asleep and drunk on the couch or pretending to be asleep and drunk on the couch is, you know, she just says outright, we were best friends before and we can stay best friends. And this is sort of after she realizes, you know, she can't do this with Luce because she's going to hurt Heck. Uh, so yeah, it's, it, I'd agree with you there. It's like, you know, it's a different kind of a different kind of magic but then she sees loose across the room and starts interacting with her and is like oh wait a minute there is something else there and then it goes into that debate that they're having when the three of them and hector's best friend cooper who i can't remember who plays him but he is your stereotypical anything that moves kind of person where you're just <laughs> sitting here going like how is heck who is you know, he's a one, he's a pretty nice guy. And I'm not saying this, like, he's a nice guy. Like, he's a genuinely good human being, and you're rooting for Heck, too. And Coop is just this kind of person where I don't know how he and Heck are friends, but uh, with Rachel and Luce debating over love building gradually versus love at first sight, and Luce believes in love at first sight, and Rachel believing in, you know, love happens gradually. So it all goes back to, like, you know, this magic and like what makes your heart like want to burst out of your chest. Yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that until you put it in those terms, but the movie is sort of putting forward this theory that that your kind of sexual identity or maybe if we want to speak specifically about queerness, maybe there's a way in which you you can experience your queerness through that like rigor of heteronormativity and compulsory heterosexuality as this sort of like, whoa, like I'm feeling this magical sensation for the first time that feels like, right. Because doesn't Rachel say, her mom asks her, are you really sure? Are you sure you know it's been a short period of time? And what she's asking is about whether she really feels strongly about loose, but she's also implying like, do you really know that you're queer? And her response is like, I knew in the first three seconds. Yeah, so I think with... Rachel is she is still like in the very er, in that part of the movie she's still in the very early stages of she saw loose and she doesn't know how to feel about this person and she's like actively trying to hook her up with Cooper possibly to sort of tamp down her own feelings for loose and I think with that sort of thing it's Rachel's very obviously being like this is an attack on my heterosexuality which has always I've always been straight and I've never you know realized this attractive attraction to women with the growing into it versus love at first sight it's kind of the paradox of I've been queer I've always known I was queer and this is not a problem versus the I have just now realized I'm queer and I've, you know, been raised in a household where it was, you know, either deviant or just not openly accepted. And it's kind of that dichotomy of, you know, you always know or you just tamped it down so deep inside that you just forgot to think about it or did not want to think about it. And I know from my, I'm not going to go too deep into my personal experience, but it was sort of, again, with the desire for normalcy is just something I tamped down so deep inside where it was like, 
whenever it was, you know, are you not straight? It's like, no, what do you mean? Like, this is, you know, this, I'm not, you know, any different than you really push hard on the, it's something you always know. And, you know, with some people, it is something they always know. And with some people, it's the opposite. It's something that comes on gradually. You know, one part of this film that I found interesting in terms of what I know about the history of queer literature and how queer women are represented in literature that I, and you know, which is not as much as I would like to be perfectly honest. Um, but I was really interested in how this movie uses the language of flowers and that loose is a florist. Um, and I was wondering how all of the kind of flower imagery and like the Victorian language of love with flowers, like how was that all settling with you in this movie? What'd you think of it? I mean, one, it's kind of, it's a little bit hitting the nail on the head because Luce is a florist. This movie was written in two, I mean, this movie was filmed in 2005 and for most, for even that time period, it was, you know, with the secret language of, with the secret language of flowers, queerness just was not as fully accepted. I mean, Lou says, you know, the laws are changing to be more queer friendly, but we all know, like, even back in like the mid 2000s, when like actors were being outed left, right and center. And, you know, it was kind of that sort of start to change. So one of the things I was thinking about specifically was like two things. So one thing I know is that especially in England, like wearing uh, at least for I think it was queer men actually who had this experience, but you would wear like a carnation in your lapel, if you mm -hmm. were queer to communicate to other people that you were queer. And I know like lavender has held this like really important um, symbolic value to queer women, at least in the West. Yeah, um, lavender and violets. Yes, lavender and violets. So I guess like I was thinking so much about how this movie could possibly have been about heterosexuals when that is part, so much a part of the plot and it feels like so literarily perfect. And like the whole thing with the lily, like I dare you to love me. Oh, oh. Yeah, it's just like with the I dare you to love me, it's, you know, it's her favorite and it's even more perfect that it's Rachel's favorite flower with daring you know she needs to be more daring she needs to be more bold because she has been daring and bold but not quite as daring and as bold as she could be which kind of loose helps her to be throughout the entire movie with you know the you're a wanker number nine scene <laughs> And then with uh, the scene where she's daydreaming about kiss about uh, almost kissing Luce at her sister's school presentation, which I can't wait to get into that because I have so many thoughts on Rachel's family. And that's just very completely perfect. I think it would have been, I would have been like more excited if it had been um, flat, like sort of a violet or a lavender type of thing but because I unfortunately see lilies as a funeral flower <laughs> I thought but, the same thing I was like yeah. I didn't know that they were associated with love that way but okay <laughs> it's like okay well it could be like you know I dare you to love me but also with the funeral flower type thing it's kind of like the death of Rachel and Hex relationship which is like sad but it also works so that's kind of what my thoughts are on it contradictory symbolism i know so <laughs> wait, complex let's, let's, let's get into your thoughts about her family i mean so oh what God. what do you think about rachel's family and their i presume their reactions both to her you know coming out 
and also maybe even her marriage to heck which i have questions about yeah no with rachel's family i'm just like how this romantic comedy is how can the three main characters be so well written and the three supporting characters be so poorly written because it's you know coop is terrible Rachel's mother, I'm like watching her most of for majority of the movie going, why are you married to your husband? And why do you have children with him? Because you clearly don't like your family. And it's so sad where you feel bad for Rachel's father, who's played by Anthony Head, who unfortunately does not Buffy speak in this movie. And I truly wish he would. <laughs> um, little be little hammering on the head, but whatever. Um, with Rachel's dad in the first scene, they're driving to the wet to the church, and her father goes, uh, "We've been married for thir nearly thirty years. If I killed her when I first thought about it, I would be out of prison by now." And it's like your daughter's getting married. Why would you say that as you're going to the church? And yet, like when it's there's a the scene right before rachel comes out to her family it's her birthday and the gift her yeah. mother gives her for her birthday is a book called how to be a domestic goddess which i, I laughed out loud because i think to your point like the parents are almost too obviously like telling us like heteronormativity is a trap straight marriages for losers <laughs> like, like the only good heterosexual relationship in this movie is rachel's little sister h which for those of you who have not seen the movie introduces herself as H because it's not short for Henrietta. It's short for Jesus H Christ because her mother said those words when she found out she was pregnant. And for context, Rachel is in like her mid to late twenties and H is like nine, 10, maybe 11 years old if you really want to stretch it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's like, you know, her mother, it's, just her mother gives a book says how to be a domestic goddess constantly nags about grandchildren has this incredible line where uh you know Rachel is telling her parents she's in love with someone else and probably one of the most iconic lines in uh LGBT cinema when uh her mother's starting to realize Luce is a woman says so the two of you are uh lesbian friends <laughs> which i still personally quote to this day so it's just <laughs> they're just constantly named but going back to my original point uh h during the movie during the guy fox day celebrations meets a boy and it's kind of love at first sight for the two of them and he becomes her boyfriend so the fact that a relationship between like two 10 year olds is the least problematic heterosexual relationship in this movie it really says something about like you know homosexuality good, heterosexuality bad, and it's not exactly great. <laughs> yeah, especially because I think right before that, or maybe right around it, H says, asks, or is talking to Luce about like, oh, why don't you have a boyfriend, blah, blah, blah. And Luce is trying to tell her like, oh, well, you know, like I'm a lesbian, <laughs> not in so many words, but trying to say that. And then H says, oh yeah, well, you know, I'd love to spend my whole life with uh, with my best girlfriend, but it's not because we're lesbians or anything. <laughs> Which, yeah. It's sort of like you sort of wonder, well, hmm, we'll see. We'll see what happens for, for young H. Perhaps, perhaps, you know, she'll find happiness yeah. uh, elsewhere as well. It's been 15 perhaps. years. I think we're due for a sequel at this point. <laughs> yes. You no, know, H, H takes London. H takes London. H discovers 
each gets all the answers to all the questions she's been asking and discovers who she truly is. Um, wait, speaking of getting all the answers to all of your questions vis-a-vis sexuality, can we talk about the fact that Rachel rented lesbian porn from a video store? Oh my god. And like, you know it's too, this movie was written in like 2004, 2005 because the porno was Georgie's Bush. Yeah. And, you know, on top of, you know, trying to figure out your sexuality via porn, which who hasn't? tried to do that let's be fair sure renting it from a video store while running into her mother one it's a throwback but two like doesn't she know how to use a computer at home unless they don't (laughs) have one which to be fair some places people just still didn't have home computers in 2005 but just do what we all did when we were teenagers and like wait until your parents are out of the house and sneak downstairs and look (laughs) up stuff and then frantically delete the browser history because the last thing you want is questions about like why are you watching this a a sentiment that we can we can all share in differing differing shades depending on our search terms i guess (laughs) (laughs) um Yes, I found that scene so hilarious uh, for all of those reasons. And I just wrote in my notes in all caps, hello, I'll have your finest lesbian porn, please and thank you. Because I guess like I'm so used to the puritanical world of the United States that I was like laughing at the implausibility of there being like open porn in like a regular video store, like not covered up or anything. And then I was like, wait a minute, we're in the UK. I guess that's okay. But then I don't know if that's true either. Anyway. I don't I've never been issues no I've never been to a video store in the UK and I likely never will and like the fact that they didn't have to go into the secret back area to access all of those dirty dirty pornos but you know I was written by a UK director and a UK right uh written by a UK writer and directed by a UK director so I'm gonna trust them on that yeah (laughs) I believe in the plausibility of this moment yes um I think what I want to dive into now, because we've we've praised this film in some shades and for the most part, but I want mm-hmm. to get into some of the things that I think we could take this film to task for 15 years later, acknowledging that the fact that it was a mainstream kind of queer rom-com in its time was a really big deal. So mm-hmm. let's dive in, shall we? Yes, yes. Um, I think one of the big ones that I had and I'm curious what you think about this, is I realize at a certain point, and you've kind of already hit on it, that there are moments where loose borders on being sort of like a manic pixie dream girl for Rachel. Now, she's so well-written that she is at least her own woman, and we are invested in her journey apart from Rachel. But there was this moment, for example, where Rachel found her standing in the rain, and I was oh, like, yeah. oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if Rachel had been a man, I would 100% having be having flash traumatic flashbacks to 500 days of summer <laughs> and being like, oh God, oh God, honey, Luce, stop. No, why are you doing this? It's not your job to take her on this journey of, of, or rather him, rather, if Rachel had been a man, on this journey of finding himself and discovering for who he truly is. But, you know, I think for a lot of us, we all kind of have, for a lot of us queer women, we all kind of have that one girl who like was the key, the key to our personal closet and was like, 
oh, oh, oh. It's not necessarily that she's really a manic pixie dream girl. It's just like you meet her and then you just suddenly like realize like, oh, wait, this is a whole other possibility. Why did I never think of this before? But you are right. It's just the scene in the rain or whenever they're going back or whenever she's teaching her how to um, project her voice, Mm -hmm. which I it's, you know, kind of adorable because Rachel's like, show me where my diaphragm is. I can't feel it. And right in loose kind of just. I just love it. It's like, I, I love that. Like, show me where my diaphragm is because they make earlier references to the diaphragm, like the sexual like prophylactic. So yeah. I didn't realize until you said it just then that it's kind of also like a double entendre. But anyway, continue. Sorry, I interrupted. Real, no, it's fine. I totally like sudden realizations is the name of the game in <laughs> this day and age, I th- I feel. So just when she wraps her arms around Luce and it, if, or when Luce wraps, wraps her arms around Rachel, excuse me, on the one hand, it's just like you're rooting for this couple and it's a completely adorable scene. But on the other hand, if it was like a girl and a guy, it would be like, oh no, baby, what are you doing? <laughs> like, don't don't encourage this but it's kind of it's kind of hard because i am biased because i do unironically love this movie adore this movie love this movie i will always recommend this movie so yeah looking back on it now it's just you know she is the closet key and sometimes your relation a lot of the time the relationship with the closet key doesn't work out sometimes it does i hope for rachel and loose it worked Mm. out but she is very manic pixie dream girly is the closet key an established trope? There is a page on TV tropes about closet keys. Um, I know for myself, um, there are a couple of actresses out there. Uh, not a real person necessarily, but a couple of actresses out there where I saw them and I was like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, oh, I, th- I think I do want to make out with you. I think I am attracted to you. Uh, So yeah, closet keys are very much an established trope, especially in queer cinema. Um, Carol in 2005, Carol is Therese's closet key. Uh, Children's Hour back in the 1960s. It's not necessarily a direct closet key, but um, Shirley MacLaine's character is has been in love with Audrey Hepburn's character the whole time. Um, And being in love with Audrey Hepburn's character the whole time is what, you know, she realizes through Audrey Hepburn's character, I am a lesbian. Now, Children's Hour ends very tragically, while Carol ends in a completely different manner. Uh, So yeah, so it's a pretty established trope. That's I love this because I did not know that. So I'm really excited by this idea. It makes me wonder if uh, in these narratives, do you think it's, it's, is there something important about there being a closet key in these representations of queer women, especially in like the romance, right? Like when we're seeing a couple fall for each other, what, what, what does it look like? Cause I'm trying, I'm having a hard time thinking of an example of this, but I'm sure it's out there where you have a representation of queer women who know that they're queer and that's not the story of the romance. That's not the conflict of the romance. Can you think of examples? I mean, I think the one that I can think, the one that's coming to the top of my head is um, the half of it, which Ramya recommended on the podcast a couple weeks ago. Yeah, And yeah. with uh, that, I'm pretty sure the uh, main character already knows she's queer. Um, and she already has a crush on the uh, girl the, on the girl who she's trying to help the jock hook up with. And then with the 
others, the other one I can think of is uh, the comedy, but I'm a cheerleader with uh, Natasha Lyonne and she plays a cheerleader in high school who everyone is convinced is gay and she actually realizes that she is gay. So her parents sent her to a conversion therapy camp, except it's a parody of a conversion therapy camp. And she winds up falling in love with another one of the campers, but both of them already know they're gay and they don't want to change. So that's sort of some of the other films, the other films I can think of with, uh, you know, there's no closet key. It's they know they're queer and either they accept themselves as queer or already have accepted themselves as queer and they're just in love with another person. Thanks for those those uh, examples. I love but I'm a cheerleader. So I'm really glad that we had a hat tip to that in this episode. Thank you for that. Um, yes. There's also this topic of um, the closet key and this question of like a queer female couple that where they both know that they're queer, et cetera, versus the sort of like lesbian educator closet key um, makes me think about one thing that I found interesting that the film did that could have been disastrous, but they somehow seem to have avoided making it completely disastrous, which was the relationship between Luce and Cooper. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you think about that? Their relationship. I mean, being with, what it was with Luce and Cooper. You know, again, Cooper kind of sucks, but he's also a good friend to Hack, and eventually ends up being a decent friend to Luce. And you know, it could have been a complete disaster. I appreciate they had the moment in there where uh, Coop realizes, you know. I can't actually change who she is uh, when he's talking to Hector. Of course, he doesn't actually stand by that because he then asks her out on dates and he then asks her out on dates and it only takes her sit her sitting him down and saying, look, I will be your friend, but I'm never going to date you. Um, he continues to have kind of this slightly shitty attitude but he also is there and he's there to call out Luce for kind of being crappy to Hector because with Hector, he's almost an innocent bystander in all of this. And he doesn't deserve, you know, his wife falling in love with another woman, even though she can't help falling in love with another woman. It's just who she is and who that she hasn't realized it yet. So I'm glad that Coop is there to call her out for, you know, not being great to Hector and sort of having his wife kind of fall in love with her unexpectedly. So that's kind of complicated. It's one of the few things about the movie where I'm just like, you don't explore nearly enough of this potential relationship to have as much of an appreciation as you could have about it. Yeah, I totally agree because, you know, I think that all of the parts where Coop is, you know, <laughs> consistently pursuing Luz are very 2005. I think if you tried to put that in a movie now, people would um, be upset about it because they should. It's it's ridiculous and it's backward. Um, mm-hmm. Even joking about it is backward. But I do think that there is indeed something really interesting about Luz and Coop having a relationship the way that they do where they're, they push each other because they're both places sort of outside this like compulsory heterosexual world that Hector and uh, Rachel find themselves in, which is interesting in and of itself. However, there is again, like you say, something kind of problematic and complex about Coop being this rake, this like over-sexualized 'er ne'er-do-well essentially, being paired up with Luce, the queer woman, because queer women 
um, especially what, like you were saying, called the closet key. Early on, as far as I understand it, representations of queer women in like the late 19th century, the early 20th century, they were broken into two types. They were the the femme, as we might call it now, which is like sort of the pursued woman, and then the the invert, the sort of butch, the more masculine woman. Kind of if sorry, sorry for interrupting, but also like kind of the trope of like the predatory lesbian, where it's just like I will turn you gay, and that really flies into that into that as well. Exactly. I was definitely concerned about her and Coop being aligned that way for, for that reason. But they, they do manage to avoid that because there's nothing about Luce that is predatory or aggressive or at, at all, not, or even like really sexualized in the way that Coop is. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting you brought up the they're outside the world of this heterosexuality that Heck and Rachel are in because, you know, Coop has a conversation with Heck saying he's getting older and he kind of wishes that he had what Heck and Rachel have. And at the very end in the credits, he's holding a baby, which, Mm -hmm. you know, I was always how the hell does Coop have a baby until I was thinking back and I was like, oh, wait a minute, that woman who was crying in the flower shop in Luce's arms because she's pregnant, that must be Coop's baby mama right there. That must be- Damn it, Coop. Yeah, like, damn it, Coop. But, you know, he kind of does wind up in that heteronormativity pile where he's settled down and he has a baby who he very, very clearly loves. That's true. And then under that, under that, it's so funny because that scene that you're talking about where he's talking to Heck and he says, like, I want what you and Rachel have. It just seems so happy. It seems so stable. And you can see sort of like the the gears turning behind Heck's eyes as he's thinking like, but it's not happy and it's not stable. And there's clearly something very wrong here. So it's kind of like the film, like you said, sort of leaves you thinking about like, well, but then is that thing that Heck is pursuing or the thing that Coop is pursuing really what he thinks it is? Like, are you looking at it through the lens of, are you looking at it through rose tinted glasses and because it's something that you, something you want, but you don't feel like you can have or deserve to have. So it's, again, I just kind of want a sequel to this movie to see where everyone ended up. Cause it's, did Rachel and Luce stay together? Did Heck and uh, Angel Colby's character hook up? Like, you know, with the love at first sight kind of thing, you know, is Coop heteronormative with, his wife and his child with his or his partner and his child you just it leaves you wanting more <laughs> yes come on screenwriters out there right heck or right h takes london yes we want it make we it happen we want h takes <laughs> london as our final topic there there is a bit of very beautiful language in this movie that frames it that i wanted to talk to you about before we move on mm-hmm. and that is the idea of the unstoppable force and the immovable object. Yes. What yes. do you think about that that main metaphor that centers this movie? I mean, it is a trick question, as Luce tells H at the beginning of the movie. Um, and, you know, because there isn't an, uns- because, you know, there's an unstoppable force can't meet an immovable object, something's got to move. And at the end, uh, when Heck is realizing he can't stay with Rachel because he clearly, because she clearly loves another person you know he says you know it's the unstoppable force which means i've got to move and i think it's it's a pretty appropriate in a way because once you're on the path to realizing you're not heterosexual or you're not um you're not cisgender you can't really stop that from 
still progressing. It's always going to be, even if you tamp it down, it's always going to be something in the back of your mind. It's always going to be something that is, you know, the monster under the bed that, you know, you don't want to look at it, but at the end of the day, you're going to have to face it. And you're going to have to say, you know, this is the, I am the unstoppable force. My compulsory heterosexuality is the immovable object. And I've got to get this compulsory heterosexuality out of the way so I can be who I really am. And that's sort of my interpretation of it. I think that's perfect. I think that we could not end on a better note for this conversation. So before we talk about our lovely recommendations to expand your horizons from this uh, really quite delightful wisp of a movie, which is short and sweet and lovely in so many ways, I just want to give a quick shout out to our patrons from Patreon who, you know, due to your generosity this week, not only are we going to be able to keep the podcast running, but we're also going to be able to make a donation to Taraji P. Henson's foundation, as I said, this month. Um, So big shout out to, yay! To Esther, Bob, Emily, Robert, Sean, and Tim for everything you do for us and all that you are going to contribute to via us to the Henson Foundation. So thank you. All right. Yorena, now is the time in the show where we offer our antidotes. And in this case, it's not really an antidote. Let's think of it as like a delicious, a digestive post-film to to keep things moving. What is your uh, recommendation for Imagine Me and You? Uh, so my recommendation is Love, Simon. And going uh, to the teen years, it's about a teenage boy named Simon, who is in a family that loves each other very much. And the parents don't hate each other, which is kind of like the main antidote to imagine me and you of the pair of Rachel's parents hating each other. Uh, but he has uh, not told anyone that he's gay. And he sort of has this romance over the internet with another gay student at the school. And it's sort of about finding the courage to come out not only to yourself, but to your loved ones and be loved for who you truly are. So my recommendation is Love, Simon. My recommendation for uh, Imagine Me and You is a a classic novel. Uh, Many of you may have read it, but if you haven't, then you really should. And it is uh, called Orlando by the great Virginia Woolf. Uh, And I recommend it not necessarily because it is um, a a similar story of love between two queer women, but it is the product of of a great love between two queer women. And those were Virginia Woolf and her lover, uh, Vita Sackville West. Uh, This book is a sort of um, modernist experimental novel about a uh, young person in the Renaissance England named Orlando who um, lives through their youth as a man and then finds themselves transitioning to womanhood um, uh, and then living another 300 years into modernity. It's a wonderful novel. It's full of love and magic, uh, queer gender Uh, and all kinds of explorations that are a beautiful tribute to a wonderful relationship between two brilliant women. And I think there's nothing better than that to follow up this movie. Uh, Well, Yorena, thank you so much for being on this inaugural Pride episode of Rom-Com Killjoys. I really appreciate you suggesting this movie and for talking to me. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. And if you uh, have any more queer rom-coms that you want me to analyze, or even straight rom-coms you want me to analyze from a queer point of view, uh, please feel free to text me or ask me to come on again. This was a lot of fun. Baby love, my baby love.
Thank you for listening to the Rom-Com Killjoys podcast. If you liked this episode, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Rom-Com Killjoys. And if you'd like to support us further, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash rom-com killjoys to gain access to exclusive bonus content. Our theme song is Lady Slut Hitchhike Love by the band A Giant Dog. And the song you're listening to now is a cover of one of my favorites, Baby Love, by Colin Langanis. Remember, Killjoys, don't let anyone kill your joy. Not a rom-com, not me, not anyone. See you next time.